Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be finishing up Romans chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 36 of that chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. As I said, we'll be finishing up Romans chapter 11, and with it, we're finishing up a major section of the book of Romans. So you can turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 25, which is where we'll pick up our study today. As I said, the conclusion of chapter 11 completes a unified section of the book of Romans, which consists of chapters 9 through 11. These chapters deal primarily with one subject, the fate of the children of Israel and God's plan concerning them. In this section, Paul has answered the question as to why, even though Jesus is their Messiah, why the children of Israel, by and large, didn't accept Jesus as their Messiah. Through answering this question, Paul has laid out the reasons for this, both from a human point of view and from God's point of view. And he is also, in this last section of chapter 11, beginning with really verse 11, Paul has given the entire sequence of events concerning the plan of God for the salvation of both the Jews and the Gentiles. In the last couple of studies, we looked at how Paul has given us seven parallel statements from verse 11 through verse 31, which have laid out the sequence of events concerning the salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles. Here's the sequence of events that these parallel passages lay out. First, the children of Israel reject the Messiah. Second, this rejection of the Messiah has opened up the way for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to accept Christ. And then finally, Third, the acceptance of Christ by the Gentiles will eventually lead to the widespread acceptance of Jesus as Messiah by his own people, the children of Israel. Here in Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul has taught us that this is all part of God's plan from eternity. So let's read the first part of the passage that we'll be looking at today. And as you'll see, if you're paying attention, it contains three of the parallel passages that depict the sequence of events that I just explained. Let's read Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 32. Quote, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be concerned. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, So they too have now become disobedient, so that as a result of God's mercy to you, they may too now receive mercy. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. As I said, in verses 11 through 32 of Romans chapter 11, Paul lays out seven parallel sections which allude to this sequence of events 
that concern the salvation of Jew, the Jews and the salvation of Israel. Uh, the three steps in the sequence are, as I stated before, the rejection of Christ by Israel, which leads to the second step, the salvation of the Gentiles, which eventually leads to step three, the eventual salvation of, of Israel, in that the, they will eventually accept Christ as the Messiah. And so in the section we're looking at today, in verses um, 25 through 32, we have the last three instances of these parallelisms. Uh, let me run through those real quick. Um, verses 25 and 26, the rejection of Christ by Israel is in the phrase, Israel has experienced a hardening. And then the second step, the salvation of the Gentiles, is alluded to in, in the phrase, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then, of course, the salvation of Israel is talked about when Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Then down in verse 28, we have the same parallelism, only it's a little more subtle. The rejection of Christ by Israel is referred to in the phrase, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies. Then in then the salvation of the Gentiles is subtly referred to in the phrase, for your sake. Note in this verse, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles. So the you in this verse is the Gentiles. So for your sake, for the Gentiles' sake. Then finally, the eventual salvation of Israel is referred to in the phrase, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Finally, in verse 31, we have the same parallelism, um, the rejection of the Messiah by Israel in the phrase, they too have now become disobedient, and then the salvation of the Gentile as a result of God's mercy on you. And then finally, the eventual salvation of Israel is alluded to in, in the phrase, they too may now receive mercy. So that's the kind of literary structure of what Paul's laid out uh, in these last three of the seven parallelisms. Um, this is really a beautifully constructed passage full of liter literary merit. Uh, so I wanted to point that out to you. Um, but now let's dig into these verses in detail in the subject matter, get away from this literature stuff. I know you guys hate that. Anyway, let's go back now and look at them. Uh, verse 25 and 26. In these verses, we have really the most direct statement of the plan of salvation for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Verses 25 and 26 are very important verses in the Bible as they lay it all out with really an amazing prophecy by Paul. Let's read verses 25 and 26 again. Um, quote, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, unquote. As I said, this is an amazing prophecy and a very significant prophecy by Paul, especially the last phrase, which is so direct and unequivocal, all Israel will be saved. Uh, this is the mystery, as Paul calls it, uh, that Paul is revealing to us. It's a mystery because it's absolutely something that's not obvious. All Israel will be saved. In other words, the nation of Israel, by and large, will turn to their Messiah, Jesus Christ. This will happen, and, and that's what Paul is teaching here. This prophecy of Paul's, which really is what it is, a prophetic statement, this prophecy of Paul's over the centuries has been viewed by scholars historically as very difficult. 
It was difficult primarily because from the time of Christ, or just after Christ, from the time of 70 AD to be specific, until 1948, there was no nation of Israel. The Jews were scattered throughout the world. And of course, they they are still scattered throughout the world, but now they are also centralized as a nation in Israel, in the Promised Land. So for us, in the 21st century, it's much easier for us to understand and envision how this possibly could take place, precisely because Israel is back in the Promised Land as a nation. Because of this, we can envision that in some way, through some uh, set of circumstances. We can envision that the nation of Israel will turn to Christ, and through that event, Jews all over the world will be saved. It's you know, somewhat easy for us to envision that this could happen. But for scholars in the past, it was very hard to imagine because there was no nation of Israel. There was only what's called the diaspora, the, the dispersed Jews scattered throughout the world. Given this, in the past, there was a bit of a controversy by scholars over this passage. And that is, you know, they would ask, does verse 26, where Paul says all Israel will be saved, does that require that there be a nation of Israel back in Palestine? That was a Bible controversy of the past that we don't have today because, well, Israel is in the promised land. So we can say, yeah, Paul did envision that the nation of Israel would be in the promised land when they are saved. But in the past, the scholars were confused. Verse 26 seems to imply that Israel as a nation will be saved. But but there was no nation of Israel for many centuries. So, as I said, this was confusing to scholars. And because of this, there arose a messed up interpretation of this passage that says that the Israel, which Paul is speaking of here, isn't really referring to a nation of Israel, or, or even the Jews specifically, but Israel, the Israel spoken of here is speaking of the people of God in general, and, and all Christians as the new Israel. In other words, This skewed view is that Paul is really speaking of a spiritual Israel and not the literal nation or people of Israel. And this view came about, as I said, because in the past, it was so hard to envision that there would ever be a nation of Israel and Palestine gathered together ever again. But we have the benefit of living closer to the end times, I guess, and there is a nation of Israel. So for for this reason, I think it's easier for us to accept Paul's prophecy in the most simple and straightforward interpretation, and that is all Israel will be saved. That phrase means that the nation of Israel, by and large, will be saved. And the way I see it as happening, as I speculate a bit about it, there will be some event or sequence of events related to the end times, probably, and this will lead to a revival of the nation of Israel in Palestine, and they will turn to Christ as their Messiah. And through that event, Jews all over the world will also turn to Christ. In that way, all Israel will be saved, just as Paul says. And it may or may not occur exactly in that way. I'm just speculating a bit. But given that there is a nation of Israel in the land, much of the difficulties related to this verse from the past go away. I think we can, as I said, envision this happening. In fact, I would say that of the two events, the greater miracle that has occurred related to this passage is that Israel was brought back into the land as a nation. Historically speaking, that's an amazing and really miraculous event that has already occurred. No one thought that Israel would be 
brought back into Palestine or into the Promised Land as a nation throughout history. They had been dispersed throughout the world for so long. So once that has happened, I think it's relatively easy to envision a revival of the nation of Israel, which brings them to accept Christ as their Messiah. There's another difficulty in these verses, and that's with the phrase, quote, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, unquote. The Greek word translated full number is actually a vaguer word in the Greek. In most translations, it's translated as fullness, so until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It can, it can mean full number as it is uh, translated in the NIV, or it can mean completion or fulfillment, or even something like the end of an era. Scholars are split as to whether it actually means a specific full number or just the more vague fullness or completion. I think there's a case to be made for the more vague translation as fullness rather than specifically saying a full number. As I see it, there are a couple of related passages to this verse. First, back in verse 12 of Romans chapter 11, Paul uses the same word to describe the general salvation of the nation of Israel. Here's what he says back there in Romans chapter 11, verse 12. Quote, uh, he's speaking of Israel here. Quote, but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Unquote. The word translated full inclusion in the NIV is the same word as the one translated full number in verse 25. And so if Paul meant verse 25 to be parallel with verse 12, then, then the fullness of the Gentiles would refer more to a sort of national salvation or, or salvation of nations. Because in verse 12, that's what Paul is speaking of. He's, he's speaking of the salvation of the nation of Israel. Interestingly, there's a statement by Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew which indicates exactly this. The Gospel preached to the fullness of the nations, and that event would usher in the end times. Let's read that passage. It's from Matthew 24, where Jesus speaks extensively about the end times. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, uh, verse 14, quote, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Unquote. So again here, Jesus is speaking to a completion of the preaching of the gospel to all nations, and then that would usher in the end times. And this statement of Jesus's mirrors exactly what Paul says, uh, and it mirrors it so well. I, I think so for that reason, I think that the best interpretation of, of Romans 11:25 is to consider the phrase "the fullness of the Gentiles to mean something like the full preaching of the gospel to the Gentile nations, especially given that in Romans 11:26 Paul speaks specifically of the salvation of the nation of Israel. It makes sense to me that Paul, in order to make the phrases parallel in some way, would be speaking of the Gentile nations when he says the fullness of the Gentiles. So that's the way I see it. And in fact, most scholars that I consulted uh, on this topic in their commentaries hold to the same view I have of the passage. Though there are other scholars who say that Paul is speaking of a specific number of Gentile converts. Anyway, that's probably more than you ever wanted to know about that phrase in verse 25. 
In general, the important thing that Paul wanted to communicate here is that the children of Israel, in a large part, will turn to Jesus after the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, as Jesus calls it in the book of Luke. In fact, that passage also sheds light on this one. Let's read that one real quick. We'll be looking at Luke 21, verse 24. They, and uh, Jesus is speaking about the Jews here, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, unquote. This verse is relevant to Romans 11.25 because that word fulfilled has the same root word as the word translated full number in Romans 11.25. So again, um, rather than specifying some exact number of completion for the Gentile salvation, Jesus is speaking in general of a time of fulfillment for the Gentiles uh, to be saved. Anyway, as I was saying, the significant point that Paul is making is that the salvation of Israel will come after this full salvation of the Gentiles, whatever that means exactly. In other words, the salvation of Israel will come very near or even as part of the end times. That seems to be the clear testimony of these verses here in Romans 11, and also the two passages from the Gospels that we just looked at. Paul supports the idea that all Israel will be saved with some prophecies from the Old Testament. Let's read them again. Uh, let's read Romans 11, 26 and 27. Quote, As it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Unquote. These verses are taken from two places. The first couple of lines are from Isaiah 59, 20, and then there's a few lines from Isaiah 27, verse 9. Interestingly, both of these passages from Isaiah speak of the salvation that the Messiah brings, and that this salvation entails a salvation from sins, an atoning salvation. So those Jews who rejected Christ as Messiah because he didn't give the nation of Israel a political salvation from the Roman Empire, well, they just weren't reading their Old Testament very closely. Because clearly, in the book of Isaiah, we see the Messiah as a savior who brings atonement, a salvation from the punishment for sins. Moving on. In verses 28 through 32, Paul effectively sums up this section of chapter 11 by giving us some concluding verses. Let's first read verses 28 and 29. Quote, As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Unquote. Verse 28 speaks of what we might call a love-hate relationship that Israel has with God. Or as Paul puts it, they are enemies and then they are loved. That phrase, they are enemies, sounds a bit harsh. But in reality, those who reject Christ are enemies of God. They are sinners who will reap the judgment that they deserve. And specifically for the children of Israel, that rejection of Christ is all the more of an insult to God because Jesus was sent to earth to be their promised Messiah. And yet they, by and large, rejected him. So Paul's just speaking the truth here. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies. By the way, the phrase, for your sake, 
is, again, a reference to the fact that the rejection of the Messiah by the children of Israel opened up the way for the salvation of the Gentiles, thus bringing them into the family of God. And we've talked about this before in our earlier studies of Romans chapter 11. Concerning, again, the children of Israel, though they are enemies through their rejection of Christ, yet they are still loved by God because they are his people and always will be his people. Or as Paul points out, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. God still loves them and desires that they turn to Christ to be saved. The way I see it, this I guess you would call ambivalence by God toward Israel. You know, they are enemies and then they are loved. This ambivalence is similar to the ambivalence that a parent feels toward a child who, you know, makes the wrong choices and gets into trouble through those choices. The parent still loves the child, despite the fact that if that same child were a neighbor's kid, he or she would be hated. So it is with God and Israel. On account of the gospel, they are enemies. I mean, they rejected Christ. But they are loved on account of the patriarchs, because they were called as God's people on account of the patriarchs. Paul sums this up by giving a great statement about the faithfulness of God in verse 29. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. The gifts here, which are spoken of, are the gifts of God's grace, our justification by faith, the forgiveness of our sins through faith in Christ, our salvation through Christ. These are irrevocable. God will not take them back. This is one of the main themes running through chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. Also, his call is irrevocable because it's the call of God's election. Because God has chosen us in him before the creation of the world, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. This is something that he'll never take back, our calling to him. And so it is with the children of Israel. As a nation, they will always be his people and be loved by God in a special way. And throughout history, God has always preserved a remnant of that nation who are faithful to him, and he continues to do so today. Now let's look at verses 30 through 32. These verses focus on the mercy that God shows us despite our disobedience. Let's read those verses. Romans 11, verses 30 through 32, quote, Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all, unquote. Verses 30 and 31 are fairly straightforward, I think. Paul repeating the process where the children of Israel are disobedient, which opens up the way for God's mercy on the Gentiles, which in turn will bring about God's mercy on Israel. Then in verse 32, we have a summarizing statement, which is a little obscure in its wording. Let's read that verse again, Romans 11, verse 32. Quote, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all, unquote. The first part is a bit obscure, as I said, because of the wording. What does it mean exactly to be bound or to bound everyone over to disobedience? 
There's no real clarity from the scholars on this, at least that I could find. One thing that we can note is that the phrase bound everyone over is a phrase that would be used to describe someone or some animal caught in a net. So possibly another way to word this phrase, would, which would be more clear, I guess, is to say, God has caught everyone in the net of disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. And I think that that conveys the idea. I like this way of rendering the verse because the NIV translation seems to suggest that God has caused the disobedience, but that's not what's being said here. It's more like God has caught us all in our disobedience. None of us can get out of that net. We're, we're not going to elude God's watchful eye with respect to our disobedience. He will discover it. And I think that this wording of the verse is probably correct because there's a very similar verse in the book of Galatians, which says essentially the same thing. Let's look at that verse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, quote, But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe, unquote. So this is the same sort of sentiment as my rendering of Romans 11.32. Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. In other words, we've been caught by the wheels of justice, so to speak. We're guilty and locked up because of our sin. And this is similar to the sentiment in Romans 11.32 that we're caught in a net of disobedience. We can't escape the judgment of God. But the important thing is, And the thing that God desires is that we would turn to Christ and receive the mercy that is offered through Christ. God catches us in that net in order to give us the opportunity to receive forgiveness through Christ. In order that, as Paul says back here in Romans 11.32, in order that that he may have mercy on us all. And with this wonderful statement, that God desires to have mercy on us all, Paul breaks into a song of praise which sums up not only what he has written in chapter 11, and not only what he has written in chapters 9 through 11, but what he has written in all of the chapters of Romans up to that point. The end of chapter 11 completes the doctrinal part of the book of Romans. Beginning with chapter 12, Paul will begin to give us practical instructions about living the Christian life. So here in verses 33 through 36, Paul gives us this, you know, wonderful song of praise or doxology as it's called, which sums up the wisdom of God in constructing the Christian doctrine that Paul has taught us throughout the book of Romans up to this point. Let's read it. I really love it. It's a beautifully written passage. Uh, Romans 11 verses 33 through 36, quote, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen." Isn't that terrific? It's a song of praise with emphasis on God's great wisdom in all that he does, with an emphasis on the fact that we, mere humans, fall far short of being able to understand everything that goes on in the mind of God. 
we think that we're so smart, don't we? I'm sure we all have ideas that we would love to propose to God about the running of the universe. And how absurd is that? That's Paul's overall point here. How absurd it is for us to think that we can give any advice to God. This doxology has a great literary structure with all sorts of literary things going on. First, in it we have three threes. We have three attributes of God in verse 33, riches, wisdom, knowledge. Then we have three questions about these attributes in verses 34 and 35. Who has known the mind? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God? And then we have three prepositional phrases about God in verse 36, from him, through him, and to him. Then we also have a chiastic structure in verses 33 through 35, which matches up the attributes to the questions asked. Uh, If you remember what a chiastic structure is, that's where you have parallel statements occurring in an inverted pattern. So if you have four levels in your structure, you would have A, B, C, D, and then you'd have D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime, where A is parallel to A prime, B is parallel to B prime, C is parallel to C prime, etc. So the outer statements are parallel, and then as you move in one level, you get parallel statements, and then moving in one more level, you get more parallel statements. So it's kind of parallel statements in, in an inverted pattern, as I said. We have that here. And if you have the benefit of the (laughs) slides on the YouTube video, which is available, um, I've highlighted them on the chart with different colors so you can match up the parallel statements. As we see, the three attributes are parallel to the three questions in an inverted way. We, We have those three attributes of God, riches, wisdom, and knowledge, right? And that's in verse 33. And then you have these three questions, and in an inverted way, they're parallel to the the three attributes. So so the riches attribute lines up with the questions, who was ever given to God? Which is the last question, because it's inverted. And then the next one, the wisdom lines up to the second question, which is, who has been his counselor? And finally, knowledge corresponds to the first question asked, who has known the mind of the Lord? And then at the center of it all, we have these parallel statements which form the heart of the chiastic structure, which say, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And as we've talked about before, usually the center parallelism in a chiastic structure gives us the main point or the emphasis of the whole passage. That's how chiastic structures usually work. And so here, this would mean that Paul's main theme of the doxology is how we as humans can't ever hope to understand everything that God is doing in this universe. Because he says, and as he emphasizes this, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And that's a quite appropriate theme, especially after going through this difficult section of Scripture in, in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans where we have front and center you know, some of the most difficult biblical concepts. And the main one being reconciling the fact that God is sovereign over all things, and yet there is human responsibility for the actions that we take. 
you know, we are told to make the correct choices in our free will. So, so it seems in Paul's doxology, what he's teaching us here is that we can't fully understand these things, or as Paul puts it, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So anyway, that's the beautiful literary structure of the passage. And you may think that analyzing the literary structure is kind of an overly technical or somewhat useless activity, but actually it's not useless. Many times analysis of the literary things going on can give us insight into the meaning of the passage. And so when it does, well, then it's not a wasted activity because we can learn, you know, meaning about and more depth to a passage that we're studying. In this case, we already talked about how the chiastic structure points us to the emphasis or the main point of the passage, which, as I said, is found at the center of the structure. In addition to that, understanding the structure can help actually help us to interpret the meaning of certain words in the passage. An example of this is, is that the word riches used in verse 33. In, in the commentaries, there wasn't an agreement among the scholars as to what exactly Paul was referring to with the word riches. Was Paul talking about material riches, like God has all this gold piled up somewhere or something? I mean, that's what we usually think of as riches. Many scholars took riches to be referring to the riches of God's grace or or all the spiritual riches that he gives us. And that's an interesting and somewhat inspiring interpretation. I, I probably would have gone with that interpretation had I not noticed the chiastic structure. But given the chiastic structure, we can de- determine exactly what Paul meant by riches here by looking at the question that is parallel to the attribute of riches. As I said, according to the chiastic structure, the word riches is parallel to the questions, who was ever given to God that God should repay them? So in other words, the word riches actually refers to the fact that God owns absolutely everything. Who was ever given to God that God should repay him? There's nothing we can give to God that he doesn't already own. He created it all. He doesn't need anything from us. So that's what the word riches is referring to here in this uh, doxology. It refers to the fact that God owns it all. Anyway, moving beyond the structure of the passage, let me just focus on a few of the phrases in the passage. I love the separation and delineation of the two concepts, knowledge and wisdom. And Paul, of course, is saying that God has both of these things. Um, But that's not a given. I mean, there are many people, and perhaps you know some of them, there are many people who have a lot of knowledge, but they're lacking in wisdom. You know, they're smart as a whip and yet make stupid and foolish choices. So it's certainly not a given that if you have knowledge that you also have wisdom, but thank God that in God's case, those things go together and and he does have both knowledge and wisdom. I also love the way in this passage that the three questions point in a rhetorical way to our lack of each of these attributes as compared to God. The question, who has known the mind of the Lord, underscores our lack of knowledge as compared to God and our utter inability to see things as God sees them. The question, who's been his counselor, rhetorically points out how absurd it would be for us to try and provide any wisdom to God. It's absurd for mere humans to even entertain the notion that we could run the universe better than God does, though there are many, I suppose, who think they could. 
the last question, who was ever given to God, points out, as we've been talking about, our lack of any sort of riches or material resources or indeed resources of any sort such that we could give anything to God, you know, and have him benefit from it in some way. And this all brings up a side point or a side theme here, and that is that God is a debtor to no one. There is absolutely no set of circumstances whereby we could even entertain saying the words, well, God sure owes me now, because God's a debtor to no one. And yet, that's what anyone who is chasing a works-based salvation is doing. They're chasing after the impossible by thinking that they could ever do enough good works such that God is put in a position to have to say, well, well, now I owe you salvation because of the works you did. God's a debtor to absolutely no one. Who was ever given to God that God should repay them? Finally, we get to verse 36, which has the three prepositional phrases. Let's read it again. Romans eleven thirty-six. quote, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is the beginning, middle, and end of all things. He's the source, the means, and the end point of all things. First, all things are from God. Uh, you know, that's God as creator. God is the source of all things. And implicit in this is that we as creatures, as those who were created, implicit in this is that we owe God everything. We owe our entire existence and being to him. Second, all things are through God. God isn't just a God of the past. He's not a creator that created everything and then abandoned his creation. He's part of his creation in the here and now. All things are through him. He's involved in everything that goes on down here. He upholds, rules, and directs everything. He preserves, governs, and redeems everything. All things down here run through his power, wisdom, justice, and goodness. There is nothing that goes on down here that he is not involved in. All things are through him. Finally, all things are to him or, or for him, as it's also translated. Everything serves God's purposes, and everything is headed to the end which he has designed. And because of this, all worship and praise should also gravitate to him. If only everyone here on earth would realize that. And then also, certainly, as Paul says next, to conclude the chapter, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All things are to God, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.